0: So these teachings, the Buddha's teachings, are usually talked about in terms of suffering. You know, the Buddha teaches about suffering and then the end of suffering. But usually there's so much emphasis on the suffering part. (laughs) We don't often get a sense of the end of the suffering. And yet these teachings really are about the awakening of the heart, you know, the awakening of the heart, the awakening of the love and the compassion, which is the ending of the suffering.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that they say that the Buddha teaches one thing and one thing only, and that's suffering and the end of suffering, which is two things. But <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to talk a little bit more tonight about this awakening of the heart and the awakening of the love and the different expressions of this love that we experience as we walk along this path because these experiences and these expressions of the loving heart are indications of that freedom of the freeing up of the letting go of the suffering. Uh, the word is dukkha. And the dukkha is generally translated as suffering, but it, it, that isn't such a good translation. It's really better the unsatisfactory nature of existence. That, that, that part that's just never quite satisfying, you know, like uh, um, Mick Jagger, you know, <laughs> I can't get no satisfaction, you know. <laughs> and it's just kind of like that. That's that. That's the dukkha
1: <laughs>
0: And so when we actually experience the the, the heart releasing into the into the love and the different flavors and the different expressions of love, that is the freedom. It's not like the freedom is, you know, somewhere down the road and maybe if we're lucky in this lifetime we might have an experience of that. It's like every time the heart frees up, you know, the letting go, we feel the flooding of the kindness, of the, of the compassion, of the love, of the care that is that expression of the free heart. It's this lovely... A phrase the pure heart's release, the pure heart's release, and it's very much like that that, that like there's a, that we feel the release, we feel the heart releasing, and yet we might, depending on how we're perceiving our experience, we might miss those moments, we might take them for granted, or think, oh yeah, well, that's just, you know, that moment, what about the next moment, you know, it's sort of like we undermine, or we don't really value very much those moments when the heart is free, and yet it happens a lot, and so I want to talk a little bit about, to describe more about those moments, of that, those moments of when the heart expresses itself in this pure heart's release. Because those are the moments when we really are releasing our confusion. Because the heart is bound, the mind, the heart, which is chitta, the mind and the heart, one word for both. Chitta is the mind, chitta is the heart in Sanskrit. But when the heart releases, we're releasing our confusion and our misperceptions. The way we misperceive things about ourselves and about the world where we feel ourselves so separated and isolated and alienated. And So those moments, there's a, a freeing up of that misperception of that confusion. We might call that confusion a, a veil, a veil over consciousness, sometimes mental veils, emotional veils, where we're not able to see so clearly because we're caught in that Confusion about how things are, Rumi mm. one this wonderful Rumi, who just has amazing words for these kinds of things. He says, This is love to fly toward a secret sky to cause a hundred veils to fall each moment.." to cause a hundred veils to fall each moment. It's a little like that, you know. We just feel like the veils just disappear. We fly towards that secret sky, love. We can sense something and feel that release, the opening, called opening, where we are perceiving clearly, seeing clearly the way things are. But our love is often confused. Our love is often referring back to this sense of a separate self. Someone who is cut off from another or from the world, all things. And in that perception, we do things, say things, act in ways that are confuse, confusing. And even though our intention often is very good, we're wanting love, we're wanting connection, we're wanting to, to feel the intimacy. We, we, we don't know how to do it if we're coming from that place of a confused perception about who we are in the way things are. Albert Einstein, another great mind who probably was seeing things fairly clearly, I think. (laughs) He says, a human being is a part of the whole, but he experiences himself or herself her thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. This this optical delusion he calls it. Where we feel restricted um, to our own personal desires or just a few people who are near us and we 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 can't really see or sense that larger whole that larger connection, and so our love gets bound it gets constricted, it gets narrowed or 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 are binded, it can't really release into the the vast Wholeness. and it's still love but it's a, a small love or a restricted love it's not that it's not love I think that's an important piece because we can might think of ourselves as not loving or um, incapable of love or have these different kinds of ideas about ourselves but it's just that our love is bound because of our misperception and the way we're thinking and, and seeing So here, on the retreat, we start to have these moments of experience where that shifts our, our, our understanding, our perception, our connection, our way of being, the, the boundaries of how we know ourselves start to get thinner, more transparent. And we start to feel that connection and that uh, more this sense of the unboundedness unrestrictedness and the love starts to flow a little bit more easily we can catch those moments where we might be judging or criticizing or where our heart gets uh, tight or restricted and we catch it and and we we can see no I don't I don't I don't want to um, reinforce that pattern I want to feel this more openness this connection so we can let go we can open a little more. We can draw on our resources to support this opening because we're more, more in touch with what's really true when we're here. So there are these different ways that this love expresses itself. It's not just love and then we're, not, we're looking for a particular experience of love. But I see that um, there are many, many ways that this love manifests. And in the Buddhist teachings, we have this particular map called the Brahma Viharas, or Brahma Vihara means the uh, Vihara is home, Brahma is God, so the home of the God or the home of the gods and the goddesses, these divine abodes, these divine home, which is our natural home, our, our natural, um, it's a natural place for the heart to abide. And the more that I reflect on and practice these Brahma-viharas, the more that they open up, the more that they mean to me. In these four, we've been practicing the, uh, one is metta, loving-kindness. The second one is karuna, or compassion. The third one is joy, or mudita, it's usually empathetic joy and the fifth one the fourth one is equanimity upeka and each one of these is a particular flavor They're, each one has a little bit of a different way it expresses itself the meta really is this expression of wishing well wishing well wishing for people to be happy and and peaceful that 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 movement of goodwill wanting Wanting happiness, mm. just this uplifting wish for all beings to be happy. Very friendly. It's a very friendly kind of movement of the heart. It's very connecting. It's the overarching sense of the love, this kind of this connecting love. Whereas compassion really is more where this love is turned to the suffering element. Where beings are suffering, and when we touch that suffering, as Jeremy was saying too, that the heart begins to quiver in the face of that suffering, in the face of that pain, and there's a movement to want to alleviate that suffering, to alleviate that pain. And so that's a natural movement of, the, of this love when it touches the painful element. And when the love touches the joyful element, the opposite. Then the heart wants that love to con- that wa- that wants that joy to continue. It's happy. It's it's celebrating that there's joy that the somebody somebody is uh, feeling joyful about something they're engaged in or something that they have or some success in their life or or that they're financially well or their health is good. We feel joy for that. It's empathetic joy. And so it's an uplifting, celebrating kind of experience where we want we hope for that to continue may may your happiness and joy never leave you, may it continue, may it endure. It's that sense of celebration and the and the equanimity really is that where the mind is still and not reactive. It's just balanced and equanimous in the face of whatever's happening. It's not grasping, it's not attaching, it's not rejecting. It's just a still, balanced kind of mind, which really is the most embracing expression of love. Because it's just, (laughs) equanimity just embraces everything without any kind of disturbance, without any kind of stillness. Just is and so these these lovely expressions of love, and each one has a little different flavor, a little different feeling as we start to feel into them and get a sense of them and they really are our natural home. this is innate in our in our being in our in our when we when the heart is released, when we really are grounded in our uh, experience without a lot of the, the selfing, the sense of self, agitating, restless, a natural flow of kindness, of goodness, of goodwill, balance, stillness, joy. All these different expressions are naturally there. And they're also a kind of moisturizer for the heart, they're juicy. Mm. This is where our practice actually gets juicy. Sometimes we can feel when we're just doing the insight practice, you know, just paying attention, paying attention, you know, mindfulness of the sights and sounds and tastes and smells and touch and thoughts. Or, you know, it's just like a little repetitive and, and um, almost mechanical sometimes, but yet it's the, the affect. When we actually feel the affect of these experiences, the heart is touched. The heart is awakened, awakened, and we feel the engagement. And this is the juice. This is the moisturizer in the heart. We don't want to just be mechanical. You know, we're really good meditators, walking, sitting, paying attention to the breath, seeing thoughts coming and going. You know, impermanence, anatta. You know. It can get a little dry. <laughs> and so as we let ourselves feel, be touched, moved by the experience of life, this is what awakens the heart. We're actually engaged more in that way. So the, the The juice. But this is not so easy, right? Because we're often the sense of ourself and these beliefs these perceptions are often activated where we forget our natural abiding we forget our our innate nature is already this love is already this love so we we, we get confused and we get caught in this idea and this identity of our separateness and all the ways we begin to define ourselves as unlovable, worthless, insecure, not valued, not seen, not recognized, not appreciated, all the ways we start to believe who we are, it it causes a a barrier. Again, that that pulling in, that sense of... um, uh, of a Of a contracted, constricted self separate from everything else, and then we have to really be concerned about getting that love and getting it from others and um, we have we we feel so diminished and devalued and we wanna really find ways so that we're not and and get people to see us and recognize us and appreciate us and build ourselves up so we might get bigger and people will see us and or we'll just get so deflated because nobody does see us and, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we're engaged in all this what's called ego activity or the, the, the selfing activity and it's very painful because from that location we, we forget that we are love incarnated and so then we have to go and search for it so what happens, it, because of this veil, this mental, this is a veil, the mental and emotional veils that come over us because we don't see clearly, this be, then is what starts to de- distort our love. And love isn't just a pure, flowing expression. It's a distorted, kind of confused expression of love. And so if we take each one of these brahma-viharas. In the, in the map of the way the Buddha taught them, you can see how there are these different ways that these the expression starts to happen when the ego tendency gets involved in, in the the expression of each one. So for example, with loving-kindness, it's called the, the near enemy, that which looks like loving-kindness, but isn't really because the ego is confused in there, what will happen is that rather than a pure expression of love, it will become more of an attached love or a self-possessed love. It's about, really, it starts to become like, well, what's in it for me? What can you do for me? I love you, but are you going to be able to give me the things that I need from you? Because if you can't, then I'm not sure I can really love you in the way that you know I'd like to or whether you'd want me to. So we have we start making contracts about I'll love you if. I'll love you if you do this or if you do that. If you're kind to me or good to me. But I won't love you otherwise. So the love starts to get rather distorted there. It's called an attached love or a self-possessed love. So that's where there's some egoic uh, movement in that. It's not so pure. It's not a love that can flow out to all beings or all, all uh, things. And if the heart is very contracted and there's a lot of fear and a lot of um, holding and grasping in there then it goes all the way to the other extreme. The loving kindness just turns around in what's called the far enemy and then it turns into uh, ill will or anger or hatred. So it just flips around when the ego gets very strong, gets angry because it's not getting what it wants, and so it actually wants to hurt, cause harm, ill will. We say things, we do things that are hurtful and harmful. And again, the heart—it's just—it's a, a—it's a—it's a distortion of love. We're wanting to love, but the heart just is—is is there so much confusion there? So it just turns in on itself, and we we feel hate, and sometimes this violence towards even towards ourselves or to our, towards others, because we're so contracted and confused there, so much kind of delusion in that state. The compassion similar so when the when the when there's some egoic tendency in the contact with the pain come near that the person who is in pain or the person who's having some difficulty and the love comes near it and because it can't open to it there's there's some there's some difficulty in being able to be open to that pain we don't like it we want it to change we want to fix it we want to rescue that person and we get involved in our own agenda about what we think needs to happen and it's okay to have a, you know, a wish for somebody to be relieved of their pain and their, their sorrow however we get in there a little bit too much and then we're, try- we're tinkering, we're changing it so that what? so that I'll feel better so i don't have to feel the pain and the sorrow if you change i'll feel happier right if i can just get you get all of your circumstances in order i'll be able to relax <laughs> again it's about me it's not about the other person and so that so the love gets turned again it gets distorted again it's not really a pure, kind of caring, respectful, contactful, engaged in the alleviation of that pain. There's a little bit too much of me in it. And so the near enemy, which looks like compassion but is not compassion, is there's when there's um, some anger or self-righteous anger. It shouldn't be like this. You know it seems like we're really caring about it, but actually, it's just so that I'll get relieved of my own pain or sorrow, or some despair about how the situation is. Different than just the sadness, or the pure sadness that can be released in that, which is a real contactful kind of loving connection. But this kind of demand that it be different shouldn't be like this. The Buddha, in one of his discourses, uses this refrain. He says, um, He grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest, and becomes distraught. It's this despairing kind of, it shouldn't be like this. Rather than seeing, this is the nature of things. Things change. Come, go. People get sick. Old age, death. the way of things. And finding some way to be in balance with this changing nature of course being touched and feel the compassion and the quivering but is it really about me or is it about this person who is in this difficult state? The far enemy when we're really turned when we're not able to feel the compassion at all we just the anger just turns and turns and gets more and more contracted it becomes cruelty where we just really really do things that are hurtful violent like the wars that happen in the world you know just no compassion there it just cast to change killing and abusing and violence and that nature it still seems like it's coming from a place of some love you know we want to get what we think what the change that's going to come about is actually going to be better It's so distorted, so confused. The way that humankind goes about and tries to make things better. So distorted. And the joy, the sympathetic joy. It's such a wonderful feeling to be in contact with people who are happy and people who are having success and when good things are happening and we can celebrate that with people, it's a good feeling. And so the near enemy of that, which looks like this shared joy or empathetic joy, the near enemy is over exuberance. We just get so taken up with it that we are actually getting off on the good feeling. It's sort of like, I love this feeling. You know, I'll hang out with you a lot because I just feel so great. <laughs> and we're just, it's, it's like we're feeding off of the person for a good feeling, for a pleasurable feeling. And I, I know this for myself. I, I remember, I just, I lo- you know, I just love the feeling of feeling good. And so when I was in different situations with people who were just happy and good things were happening, it was like, oh, yes, I love this. <laughs> you know? And I would just get so ungrounded and just kind of be almost like sucking on this good feeling, like a lollipop or something. You know? It's not grounded. Again, it's about me. <laughs> not so much about the other person. And then when the heart starts to get more distorted, and the ego gets more engaged, and and we we come into contact with somebody who's happy, and has good things in their lives, has good fortune in their lives, what happens? Hmm? Jealousy. Jealousy, envy, comparing, competition, rivalry, Why do they have so much that's good? I don't have as much as they have. If I had what they have, I'd be so much happier. My life would be so much better. How come they get it? How come they get all the successes and I just get failure? You know, the mind just goes into this comparing and jealousy. And we lose connection again. We lose connection with that greater sense of abundant, the abundant universe that we live in, it's very, we go, the the ego mind goes very much into this quantitative perception. There's only so much that can go around and they've got it, (laughs) you know, which leaves me out. (laughs) How come they have so much? Because then there isn't enough for me, right? Again, a very distorted, becomes a very distorted way of perceiving reality. And then we don't really see that actually we are the source of all that love and that joy and that abundance. It's all, it's all, it's all here. Again, the way the mind just comes in and creates a kind of constricted, tight sense of a thing. And then forgets all of this that's here our connection to the vastness to the boundless this misperception and then the equanimity the near enemy which looks like equanimity but is not equanimity is when we're just so kind of detached and unmoved by what's happening that we just actually fall into a place of indifference and we just kind of withdraw. We don't even care. <laughs> you know? It's not even about me anymore. It's so much not about me that you just kind of lose connection completely. Completely the other direction. So detached. I'm so detached that nothing affects me. I'm above it all. I'm just so free. the world doesn't concern me at all the world is just a world of confusion and ignorance and I am so far beyond that (laughs) again it's just right it's just a misperception very confused, somewhat grandiose disconnected sometimes apathetic Mm, withdrawn. It looks like equanimity, but it's not. There's still fear. The fear, the ego fear, is keeping one from really meeting, engaging, interacting, coming into full contact, really meeting experience, which is the fullness, the aliveness. The far enemy, when we go to the other extreme, is just complete attachment and aversion. The opposite of equanimity, where there's just no equanimity. We just want things the way we want them, the demands, the expectations, the control, the manipulation. Mm. It's all about me.
1: Mm.
0: You can just sense, you can just sense how... Sort of the the dimensions and the levels of that, you know, where there's a little bit of self and then a little bit more of self and then a lot of self and a lot of ego. And just how the heart just keeps constricting and contracting along that line. And then when the heart is just free, free of that constriction, free of that contraction. And then there's the pure meeting, the pure connecting with With ourselves and with others and with experience and people, we're just here. It's not the fear the fear that usually arises in relationship to that so so we're we're looking at this this uh mechanism this this uh way that the heart the heart gets contracted the heart gets forgetful. About what's real what's what who who I really am, what what is my true nature, my innate nature that I am, but yet you can see how this is so much the human condition, all the things that I've just mentioned, all the things I talked about, that's what we find in this world. that is the way most of us are interacting most of the time, and there's so little questioning, really in the bigger scheme of things. There's so little questioning of this. This French psychoanalyst, Herbert Benoit said, the aim of of our inner work is not the destruction of the ego, but its transformation. And I really like that because it can seem in, often in these Buddhist, te- these Buddhist teachings like somehow we're trying to annihilate the ego or trying to get rid of the ego or sometimes we relate to our thinking that way like we have to just get rid of our thoughts. Annihilate so anything that manifests as a sense of self. And again, that's vi- there's a violence to that. There's, a, there's an aggression uh, to that. There, again, a misperception in that. So really it's more we're looking at how can we how can we transform or transmute the energies because all of these um uh, uh, patterns that I described are 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 expressions of an intent of love of getting something getting some connection or getting some recognition or getting some kind of meeting to, you know they're all have that as, as their, their basic motivation so the energy of love is there it's a confu- it's confused though so how do we transmute that energy that's really what we're looking at Nisargadat, one of the great saints says the mind creates the abyss and love crosses it the mind creates the abyss and love crosses it so love love is really so key it's so key in our practice this this turning of the mind you know we've been talking about the turning of the mind or this inclining the mind the buddha this is so key in the buddha's teachings and the buddha's practices but how do we it's really often i get just get this kind of tai chi movement you know it's just like or aikido you know we're just turning the mind we're not we're not rejecting we're not cutting off we're not annihilating just this turning kind of reconfiguring the energy of our being. And so the Buddha really teaches this this inclining toward the wholesome impulses, the wholesome intentions, the wholesome thoughts that are already arising in our mind. We've been talking about this, how we how we can sustain aim and sustain more of our attention on the goodness that is already there. Finding those threads, finding the, uh, the energy of kindness and love and compassion and equanimity that's already arising. We really want to be paying attention to that rather than just the emphasis on the suffering or the negativity, or on the egoic problems, or the ways that I'm caught, the ways that I'm stuck, which is often where the perception goes. We're we're looking so much at what's wrong that we're actually not really looking much at what's right, (laughs) what's already moving through the consciousness, which is already awakened in the heart. It's one of the reasons where when we when we start do our loving kindness practice, one of the invitations is to start by reflecting on your good qualities, or if you're doing meta for a difficult person, reflect on their good qualities mm-hmm. bringing bringing that goodness in so that it gives some foundation it gives some where to stand as we continue to walk into that cultivation of the love it's already arisen and sometimes you might think well it's not arisen in me (laughs) it's not arisen in my mind (laughs) but again there's a probably a tendency to overlook the moments the many many moments in the day where there's already that flow of goodness oh so many moments Jesus said in Matthew 7:13, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to suffering and those who go through it are many but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to the happiness of true life (coughs) and those who find it are few but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to the happiness of the true life and those who find it are few not so easy yet the gate is there the gate is there. And I think that's why we have to refine our mind. We have to re- refine our attention so that we can actually recognize the gate and walk through. Keep what? That's the aiming. Aim at that gate. <laughs> Aim and then just keep walking. Sustain that walking. <laughs> you keep going through. <laughs> it's there. Mm Every one, every one of you in this room has many, many openings this week. That, 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 That gate has really showed up here. And so many have walked through and again and again and again. This is the cultivation, the cultivation of our heart, the awakening of the heart. So each time we do that, we are counteracting the force of our conditioning. We're, we're, we're resisting the pull of our karmic conditioning. All of all of those impressions, all of those habits, all of those things that we've learned are just pulling us into that continued, painful way of being egoic way of being the egoic way that gets constricted gets gets configured and that has a momentum it has a force and so each time we move the other direction we are counteracting that force and we are creating a new momentum in a different direction and of course modern brain research another thing that they've discovered is that when you um Sustain your attention on something for five to twenty seconds. It is planting, making an impression in the brain. It's, it's, it's the the neurons are wiring together with that impression. Five to twenty seconds, right? I mean, actually, is a kind of a long time when you actually <laughs> that kind of sustaining. So. So when you keep your mind on a, a loving-kindness phrases, or, or an act of generosity, or, and Kanye was talking about the mantra, the sacred mantra, the, when the mind is sustaining its attention on that, anything that's moving us into the sacred, that's moving us into that goodness, that's, that's reinforcing that love, is making a new impression, it's, it's opening up the being in a new way. It's, it's making an impact. Whenever there is some kind of event that we then enter into, it has a reverberation, it has an energy, it has an impact in our being, in our psyche. And it's very much like, and again I want to use this example of the bell, using this vitaka vichara. If you think again of vitaka as the kind of the the contact with the event, whatever that event is, whether it's a sight, a sound, a taste, a smell, a thought, in this case the thoughts of generosity, the thoughts of renunciation, the, the thoughts of harmlessness, the thoughts of goodwill the thoughts of and then the action of that when we when there's an event it's like the contact so like the like the stick striking hitting the bell before the sound so it's just that that contact so we just know it in that moment but everything that arises isn't just that that's not our life. <laughs> it might feel like that sometimes. <laughs> <You> know,
1: <laughs>
0: that's all that occurs, and then there's nothing else. There's no feeling, right? It's just dry and dead and stale.
1: <laughs>
0: but if we are present and there's a awareness with that event what we're going to get is the strike and then the reverberation I've long since left the striker it's not on the bell anymore it's just the reverberation there's a hit and then that's over, and then there's the reverberation. So the strike, and then the, the striker is released, everything, every instant, every moment has this reverberation. And what we're feeling, the energy of our life, is that reverberation. And so it, br- it begs the question, what's reverberating? Because if we're having contact with negativity and with thoughts that are cruel and thoughts that are uh, revengeful and jealous and envious and comparing and um, attached and aversive, that's what's going to be reverberating. <laughs> All that energy will just be going through the system, reverberating, reverberating. All that negativity, all that ill will, all that. And there may be these moments where the kindness comes in, but they'll feel rather small if there's all that. Or there may be events in our lives that are still reverberating. I mean, our birth is still reverberating. <laughs> that was an event. <laughs>
1: you
0: know, that's still reverberating. These are some of the events we don't have so much control over. You know, or, or I was thinking too of the event of the earthquake in Christchurch. That's reverberating.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Still reverberating. I was down in Christchurch and being there, you really feel the whoo, so much reverberation from that. Even though they haven't had a, a tremor for quite some time, even an aftershock for some time, and yet there's a whoo, that energy of it is so strong. Or the reverberation of the Buddha's enlightenment. Here we are. Boy, that's a strong one. So everything has this energy, has this reverberation. And so we really want to, I mean for me, this really gives me a sense of urgency to pay attention to what I'm coming into contact with. What I'm coming into contact with in my senses, my sights, and my, the things I hear, and the, the things that happen in my body things I say I mean with sight a good one for sight is you know the movies right the movies that that we choose to watch that has a huge impression Mm, I've completely changed the movies in my movie list you know if I see them at all you know it's sort of like because of the impression because of the reverberation Mm, things that we read the things that we engage in the activities that we engage in, the people that we spend time with. All of that
1: impacts.
0: So not only what's happening within our own mind and all that's circulating around there, but also everything is circulating out here. The Buddha has a very strong teaching on guarding the senses. Guarding the senses because of the power of the impressions and how that affects our mind. And so we can pretty much do a whole um, review across the board, and look at our lives, and and look at our our friends, and you know look at our work, and look at everything, the way, the activities that we're engaged in, and 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 start to consider the way all of that is impacting us, and, and is there any way that we can begin to bring some change or, or transformation to that? What can, we, what can we bring some change to in a, in a real way, and what kinds of things do we just need to begin to change our attitude or our relationship and the way that we're, we're being in regards to those situations? So the power of these, uh, this turning towards the, the wholesome, turning towards the sacred, I call it the sacred, gathering, gathering more of the sacred energy, this wholesome, this good energy around. And this way we begin to transform our life, not only our mind and our consciousness, we, we change, we, we, we reshape our entire life. And really, in order to uplift the heart and uplift the mind, we really need to allow ourselves to feel the joy. When I was talking about this once in, with someone, and also I spoke about it in a Dharma talk, afterwards a friend of mine who was in the talk came up to me and she said, what I realize is that if I allow myself to enjoy the action or the uh, something that I'm offering or something that I'm engaged in or even an experience that's arising. She said that it's not a selfless act. She said, I feel it's selfish. That if I'm getting any pleasure, if I'm getting any joy, any nourishment from the event, it's selfish. And I was so interested in that because I could see, I could get a sense of this kind of, again, a distortion, you know, not wanting to be selfish is already an egoic position. Wanting to be selfless (laughs) rather than, again, just the pure expression, the pure act, and then the reverberation of the joy, the reverberation of the upliftment of the heart. Because it's natural that when we engage in these skillful and wholesome and loving activities, we will feel, the reverberation will be that we will feel happy. We will feel uplifted. We will feel the love. We'll feel the joy. And that's how the mind and the heart awaken. If we don't let ourselves feel it, if we say, no, it's only for them, I'm doing this for them, it's not for me, but there's still that that idea that I'm not supposed to be getting any benefit of that, it's still going to be a veil, it's still going to be a barrier. I'm cutting myself off, I'm cutting my, my heart off from its own nourishment. And we are always in this relationship of nourishment with all things with all of life when the conduit is open when our heart is open when it's not then we're cut off from our nourishment from our life force from our vitality and so it's so necessary to allow ourselves to feel the happiness and the joy of our actions of, what, of our generosity of our goodness to let ourselves without thinking oh I'm just getting conceited and prideful and to allow that rush of goodness because if you're happy people are going to be happy around you <laughs> and we share the benefit we share the merit of our own awakening in this way. So I want to end uh, the talk with parts of this one piece, this poem, this prose that was written by Ellen Bass called Pray for Peace. Pray to whomever you kneel down to Jesus nailed to his wooden or marble or plastic cross, his suffering face bent to kiss you. Buddha, still under the bow tree in scorching heat, Adonai, Allah, raise your arms to Mary that she may lay her palm on our brows, to Shikana, queen of heaven and earth, to Anana in her strip descent, hawk or wolf or the great whale, record keeper of time before, time now, time ahead. Pray, fields of artichokes and elegant strawberries. Pray on the bus for your latte and croissant. Make your eating and drinking a supplication. As you wash your face, the water slipping through your fingers, a prayer, water, softest thing on earth, gentleness that wears away rock. The, fr- the fragile case we are poured into. When you walk to your car, to the mailbox, to the store, let each step be a prayer that we will keep our legs, that we do not blow off anyone else's legs or crush their skulls. And as you work typing with a new manicure, a tiny palm tree painted on one pearlescent nail, or delivering soda, or drawing good blood into rubber-capped vials, writing on a blackboard with yellow chalk, twirling pizzas, pray for peace. Feed the birds for peace, each, each shiny seed that spills onto the earth another second of peace. Shovel leaves or snow or trash from your sidewalk Make life a holy path. Scoop prayer water from the gutter, the river, the faucet. Mumble along like a crazy person, dancing or stumbling and shouting your prayer through the street. Let's sit.